Hello, and uh, welcome to M Pavilion. My name's Jesse French. I'm the Deputy Creative Director of M Pavilion. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping first. If you're sitting on the edge of the, uh, the seating there and you are able-bodied enough to move into the middle, we'd appreciate it if you do because we often get latecomers that like to sit there. Um, at M Pavilion, we like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and that's the Yalakut Willem people of the Bunurong, which is one of the five major language groups of the Kulin Nation. Um, this week in particular, I think it's important to acknowledge that an acknowledgement is only an acknowledgement, it's not action, and have a think about the action that we could do to make our shared future a little bit more equitable for the first Australians here. Um, I'm going to pass over to Lara Brown from Architects, at Architects for Peace, and she's going to properly <coughs> introduce everyone, but thank you for coming tonight. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. And on behalf of Architects for Peace, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us on this lovely Tuesday evening at M Pavilion for our first ever M Talk Power to the People The Importance of Democratic Public Spaces. My name is Lara Brown, and I'm a writer specializing in architecture, and I'm also an Architects for Peace volunteer and board member. I'll quickly share with you a few things that inspired the idea for this talk. One was the result of the 2016 US presidential election and the resulting women's marches that took place in the states and in cities around the world, including Melbourne. I'll state the obvious, and I will not rail about Trump. Uh, that's, I'll do that on Wednesdays. Um, Rather, that in order for those mass protests to take place, that public space needed to exist and people needed to have access to those spaces. <clears throat> Another factor that inspired the idea for this talk is last year, Architects for Peace advocated for people experiencing homelessness and their right to public space. That's because it was being threatened by proposed uh, amendments to bylaws that would essentially criminalize homelessness in the city. Um, another factor was the need for spaces where people can connect. And um, M Pavilion is a perfect example of this where we can gather formally like we're doing tonight. And people can also gather informally here. And I've witnessed it on more than one occasion at M Pavilion that complete strangers have started conversations with one another. And it's um, a lovely thing to witness, and we need to have spaces so that people are able to do that. And lastly, the concern about commercialization and the com commercialization of practically everything and the concern that we can't go more than five minutes without buying something or receiving a message that we need to buy something and that spilling over into public space. So, and we proposed this talk prior to the announcement about the Apple Store at Fed Square. I'm sure our speakers will have some opinions on that. They will also share with you their insights about the importance of democratic public spaces. So each speaker will talk approximately 10 to 15 minutes, and we'd like you to hold all questions till the end, if you would please and then we'll open up the floor to questions. So joining us tonight are Beatrice Maturano. She's an architect, urban designer, and she is currently the, the Director of Academic and International Relations in the Department of Architecture and Urbanism at the University of Chile. She is also the founder of Architects for Peace. And next is uh, Peter Raisbeck. He's an architect, design tutor, and researcher. He's worked in architectural practices, including his own firm. He currently teaches a design activism course at the University of Melbourne, and he pins his opinion on his blog, peterraisbeck.com. Kim Dovey is also a professor at the University of Melbourne, teaching architecture in urban design. His book, Framing Places, last published in 2008, explores theories of place as mediators of power, incorporating case studies of politics of public space, housing, shopping malls, and corporate towers. I'll turn it over to Beatrice. Thank you. 
Thank you, Lara. Well, as Lara said, um, I'm the founder of Architects for Peace, and I take great joy in saying that. Not because I did it all by myself. I started by myself with a computer, but soon after, people started joining, and that demonstrated the necessity there was to talk about social issues at that time, particularly when Australia was going to engage in the Second Iraq War. I see some of the old guard here, and I'm so pleased to see that because um, I have been able, I lived here in Australia for 27 years, and I have been able to remove myself from the organization, and I have been living in here in Chile now for almost six years, and things are working, and the old guard is there, and the new guard is coming, and new people, new faces which demonstrate, first of all, that uh, was an indispensable, which is really good. Secondly, that the form of organization, the, the way we set it up, and we had many discussions about that, whether we had to be, some positions had to be paid or had to be volunteer or no, and somehow it demonstrated sustainability in that sense, social sustainability, if we can call it that way. And that is... Um, gives me a great pleasure to see that new faces if uh, dealing with issues that are contemporary to today, today's world, if almost 15 years later. And, uh, well, I wanted to say some things about connecting with public space. I remember in 2004 we, did, um, we had a conference, I call it conference because uh, we wanted a big word for that. It was an event, all-day event, under the bridge in St. Kilda Road, in, on St. Kilda, under the bridge, which has been renovated now, of course. But that we wanted to be free, we wanted to invite everyone from everywhere. In fact, we opened the houses, like if someone came from Sydney, they could stay with me, not to have to pay for a hotel. We had top speakers from University of Melbourne, from RMIT, and many places, we combine this with art. This happened in the public realm, on the street. It was fabulous. That demonstrated to me that people want to do the right thing. A conference that was really a good quality conference where no one charged for presenting, doing a presentation, for dancing, there was music, there was everything. Our problem though was the city because although we are a not-for-profit organization and we don't, even then and now, we don't have two cents. But um, we had to pay insurance, we had to uh, ask for permissions to be on the street just because we were going to be more than five people or something like that. Then we had to be responsible. If one of you had fell, and it was so stressing. That was what caused the most stress in the whole event. Well, that says a little bit about the type of... It makes me think about the public space. I know we are going to talk, is the main uh, topic today, but I was saying the other day, talking with Lara and a few of the members of Architects for Peace, that to me, public space is about design, is about use, is about cities, but at the end, it's about culture then the issues of public space here are going to be very different to the issues in, a, in another country. And now that I have the opportunity to do research and to teach in Santiago, in Chile, is completely different. And perhaps the main issue is not public space in that sense, although if we talk a bit longer, I could refer to it, but other issues, social integration, for example, which... Go, going back to Architects for Peace takes me to the main objective of public, uh, Architects for Peace that was get to know each other, get to know the differences, get to know the nations, rather than put a blanket and say this problem for me that is important here or there is important for everyone in the same degree. I think there is agreement that public space is important, that social housing is important, that integration is important, but it takes on different phases, degrees, levels of importance. Then I think I'm taking too long, <laughs> and uh, I'm open to 
the questions later. Thank you. It's okay. I've got, I've got my own special microphone. So I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land of which we meet today. I'd like to pay my respect to elders past and present. It's great to be here with um, Beatrice and Kim. And this is actually my first uh, visit to the M Pavilion. And it's great to see so many of you here um, interested in this important topic. It's wonderful to be in a piece of iconic architecture produced by one of the world's great star architects, Rem Coolhouse, and of course his associated brand, OMA. As I'd like to explain, the conjunctions of um, brands, and if you want to call them branded products, um, I want to argue that maybe we should pull the M Pavilion down. Now, when I first mentioned this to my partner, she said, what? And actually, I said to her, I wanted to burn it down, but um, maybe that's entirely appropriate for a person to say a teacher's a subject called design activism and hopes to teach students, architecture students and urbanists about urban pro pro protest. But then I relented a bit and I thought, maybe I didn't really want to burn it, but maybe I just wanted to demolish it which is probably less extreme than actually wanting to burn it. So let me explain a little as to why I came to that conclusion. And to do so, I want to talk about a couple of things, three things today, in regards to the topic of democratic urban spaces. Firstly, I'll tell you a little bit about the subject that I run called Design Activism, which is a postgraduate intensive subject at MSD. And secondly, I'd like to talk a little bit about branding and digital technology and the realm of politics. And finally, that would kind of lead into some thoughts and a few ideas to throw into the mix about the Apple Store at Federation Square. And then I want to talk about, at the very end, um, some of the things I think we need to talk about or discuss or think about in terms of theory and practice in relation to democratic or urban spaces. I've got about, I'm aware I've got about, I think my talk will take about 15, um, maybe a few more minutes beyond. I think it's, it's great that Kim's here, um, and it, in, in some ways it's kind of ironic that he's here, that we're talking about this topic, um, because I, I sort of spoke to him today to warn him that I was going to talk about this, but um, he was actually instrumental in one of my first activist campaigns. And, in fact, it was actually a campaign against him. Um, and when I was a very young architecture student at RMIT, Kim was also at RMIT, and I think he'd just come back from uh, studying with Christopher Alexander at Berkeley in the, in the West Coast, and... Um, he had a spot in um, the old Gossard building in Franklin Street, which for many years, interestingly, had the words Fantasyland uh, graffitied across the building, which is kind of fitting for a building that housed an architecture school. And um, I can't quite remember what happened, but this is my version of events. Kim had a kind of pin-up board or a comments board outside his office where he had put up a sort of design manifesto and um, most of the comments on the board expressed a theoretical position that I was at that time completely against. And the reason I was against it was because at that particular time in my career as a young architecture student, I was in a cult centred on the American architect Peter Eisenman, who was East Coast. Now, Eisenman had just been to visit the school for an entire afternoon. And as I was very young and impressionable, this was enough to suck me into his particular cultish kind of architecture. And at that particular time, and I can't remember what year it is, modesty prevents me from saying that, um, he was probably one of the really big stars of architecture in the 80s. Kim's approach, of course, was different, and now I realise probably wiser. And um, I think 
But at that time, I saw Kim's approach and his design manifesto as being antithetical to everything that Eisenman and, of course, myself believed in. So one night, I snuck into the Gossard building with a humongous, and I mean humongous, black texter and wrote polemical um, statements and graffiti all over the manifesto wall outside Kim's office. It was really me versus the manifesto. And, of course, as it happened, it wasn't very long. As, as you soon go into these cults, you quickly spat out of them or get sick of them. So I think the fact that we're sitting here today together suggests to me that at the end of the day, Kim was probably right. Um, but I guess that initial campaign of taking the big fat texter um, has some of the elements of the sorts of things that we talk about in and, and do in design activism, uh, the subject at MSD. We talk a lot about graffiti, we talk a bit about the text texters, and we talk a bit about sneaking into places and even getting arrested. And so really the class is about teaching architects and urban, urbanists how to be very, 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 and I mean very, annoying. Um, the subject aims to teach architects, landscape architects, planners and urban designers how to be advocates. It seeks to teach these um, particular students um, ways that design and their design skills or their planning skills and knowledge can be linked to politics, spatial practice, critical theory, activism and community development. We discuss a number of case studies in the class and in the class students are required to actually try and design their own um, activist um, campaign. One of the most interesting aspects of the subject is that we're able to bring together various activists, academics and practitioners involved in the interfaces between alternative architecture, protest and community organisations. And in past years, um, we've had some really interesting speakers and I'll just run through some of those people. Um, because it gives you an idea about the flavour of the subject. We have um, we got in um, a friend of mine called Bev Paulson who runs a project called Alternatives to Violence, which discusses... Um, they discuss non-violent protest and alternatives to violence and how this plays out in community development. Um, AVP has done quite a bit of work in post-conflict areas in Southeast Asia, such as in Arche. Um, we get my, of course, you get your friends in when you get to run a subject. Got my friend Peter Hogging who comes in and talks about inner city urban um, urban planning activism in Melbourne. We have a journalist, Cathy Alexander, who comes in and talks about the mechanics and dynamics of the Australian media. We also have um, the national convener of uh, Safe Ground, which is a uh, national or international anti landmine um, coalition, and she discusses how to lob best lobby politicians in Canberra. Um, the first time it rang, we had Gary Muratori of Burger Off, who discussed um, his campaign against McDonald's in Tacoma. And in the last couple of years, each year, we have had advertising executives from McCann, a global advertising agency, have graciously explained the inner workings and dark arts of advertising campaigns and the advertising industry, which I think is really important for activists to know about. And, of course, last year, Targel, um, in her role then as president for Architects for Peace, came into the class and spoke about um, Architects for Peace, social justice, solidarity and respect and peace. That was a great talk. So I think in some ways... I mean, I'm the practice lecturer at MSD, and in some ways... Design activism goes against uh, traditional models of teaching architectural practice in um, architecture schools. It covers things like media literacy, digital activism, transgressive spatial practices, and um, these sorts of things are not normally seen as being part of an architecture school curriculum. Yet I think some of these things are exactly what we need to teach. I think too often in architecture schools, the predominant mode of teaching architecture is too often focused on technology and I suppose what I would call design regulation and technique and, and kind of um, policy controversies. And I think in some ways we need to 
be less untethered from the politics of design speculation, um, spatial aesthetics, and most of all, lived experience. So that kind of gets to my second point, and one of the case studies that we had in the subject last year was concerning the Trump um, presidential campaign. And I think with the rise of Trump and a kind of, I suppose, social media celebritisation of politics, I think architects and urbanists really need to start to look at that relationship between technology and politics. Trump's win by his use of the tweet and the powerful use of the tweet and the data informatics work done by the consulting company firm Cambridge Analytica, a firm that helped this campaign and a firm that makes money by combining data mining, data analysis um, with strategic communication um, in all four electoral processes is really interesting. And of course, as, now, as we now know and we're beginning to know, Trump also seemed to be helped by a swarm of Russian uh, bots or software bots who seem to spread anti-Hillary propaganda across various social media channels, including Facebook. The new digital economy is, I guess, primarily focused on distracting our attention and then gaining it. And, of course, for architects, it's kind of fun to think about big data and data analytics because that's the latest buzzwords and all the wonderful things that architects and urbanists might do with that data. But I think in light of Trump's win and um, his campaign's use of technology, I think the real question for us we should be asking as architects is how does technology translate to politics of architecture and how does it shape those politics? And I think this is a really critical issue for us to face. To some extent, if not completely, the political landscape of architecture has already had a kind of Kardashian celebrity treatment. The star architects are like Kardashians and it's all about their brands and how their branded content is distributed across social media channels. So given the complexities of digital technology in this new political economy, perhaps we as architects and urbanists need to think through the issues and fault lines at play here. I think we need to be more circumspect when we jump into Trumpian cycles of social media outrage. Um, and by this I mean the cycles of Twitter outrage versus Twitter outrage, meme versus meme, and hashtag versus hashtag. At the moment, of course, and um, someone was talking to me about this before we spoke, in Melbourne we have the outrage of the evil Apple store versus people who love Federation Square. There are no less than eight separate petitions about this issue at change.org. The Apple store at Federation Square is a controversy that's more like a brand collision, I think. A car crash of the big brands, Melbourne, Federation Square, crazy weird abstract architecture by virtue of lab architecture, and of course the star architecture brand in the form of Fosters and Partners who are designing the new store. And of course one of the biggest global brands of all, Apple. That collision I think is you know, enough to get political opportunities, opportunists or is enough to get opportunists whether they be tabloid journalists or local pol politicians, who I'm sure uh, then build their own brands by being a part of the ecology of outrage, an ecology that helps their smaller brands get bigger by being a part of the outrage. And I guess having said all that, architects have always been attracted to the vagaries of fame and celebrity. And nowadays, myself included, if you read my blog, they're not adverse to becoming digital celebrities, influencers and thought leaders. So latching on to cycles of social media outrage can really help. It can kind of help your career. It can make your small brand become a bigger brand, especially if you're involved with a brand collision like Federation Square and Apple. I think the crude emphasis on the iconic object, branded architecture, 
chock full of symbolic capital, has helped to create a global system of architecture that is really, in a way, overly bound to architectural pedigrees, the clustering of brands around star architects, and the crude shaping of theory focused on technologies like BIM and parametrics. But brands can also lose their value. For example, I am constantly worried about the sustainability brand losing its value. And I think one of the reasons I developed design activism as a subject was because I didn't feel that architects were doing enough to combat climate change. It's always great to talk about cities as ecosystems and fill them with so-called sustainable um, developments, infrastructure or initiatives. But as climate change accelerates, there will be a point where we'll get to where we may really need to chain ourselves to the gates of the open-cut coal mines. And that's kind of, that thought is what inspired me to start the subject. Um, I think I can talk more about that. One of the people who came to speak to us in design activism was Derek Jensen, who also makes the point that maybe to some extent the sustainability brand is conning us. Um, Derek was a leader in the deep green uh, resistance movement and um, he was kind of known as the violence guy because he woke up one morning, or was reported as saying in the American media, um, when he wakes up in the morning he wasn't exactly sure whether or not he should write something or whether he should go up and blow up a coal mine. Um, I think in the same way that we need to radically decarbonise cities, we need to kind of de-economise cities. We need to stop thinking about architecture and urbanism in terms of branded icons. I think we need to rid our cities of iconicity. Hence, I would like to demolish the Empyrean because I see it as a kind of icon. I see it as a kind of uh, thing that's in a nexus of big brand and luxury architecture. I think we need to have a new realism when it comes to ur urban spaces and only then, I think, will we go towards having a civil society which is not entirely structured by brands. I would kind of call it a realist urbanism that, that values the collective memories of our cities rather than brand consumption. I've always kind of liked um, the realism of Pasolini's film, Salo, which has been banned and rebanned and banned many times, is the greatest film I've ever seen, and it uses ordinary actors amongst the lower strata of societies, filmed on location, and has a kind of focus on everyday life. I think Kim's work and research on informal cities is really interesting in this regard because it suggests that recreating cities of the south in the image of our own cities in the north is a really absurd idea. I think we have a lot to learn from the informal city and that seems to be a more realist approach. Moreover, I think a realist urbanism would look at making our cities free of fear. Last weekend, I was sitting at the tennis in the High Sense Arena, an arena full of brands. The crowd started yelling, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Now, I don't know if I can do the rest of it quite that well. Oi, oi, oi. And I was embarrassed and a little fearful of this kind of branded nationalism in such a large public space. So I sort of got to ask the question, is that the ultimate expression of our civil and civic life? Simona Castricum, who's kindly in the audience here today, um, has and spoke at our design activism course. Um, her research, I think, really contributes to our understanding of how architectural typologies are complicit in violence, displacement and erasure through its gendered programs. Last week she led around the city um, to consider safe and queer spaces as a part of the Midsummer Festival. Of course, I can't really speak for her experience and experiences in the city, but I feel that a realist urbanism needs to account for the way that gender structures urban space. And finally, 
I think a realist urbanism which must also recognise um, country, which is maybe another reason why we should demolish the M Pavilion, given the rhetoric um, of Coolhouse when he came here and talked about the urban-rural divide. Only when we recognise country and all that implies and build that recognition into our urban and theoretical apparatus will we have cities where we can be truly free. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Can you hear me? Yeah? Okay. Thank you. And thank you, Peter. Um, I think I should say Peter was, was right. I mean, I, I admire people who scrawl stuff on walls, to tell you the truth, especially if there's you know, some you know, real <coughs> intent behind it, as there was in that case. Um, I can scarcely remember it. I think I'm showing my age. Um, this question about the role of uh, public space in relation to uh, power and social change is uh, what I wanted to talk about. And I just, it's actually a very, very complex uh, issue that you know, comes down to uh, everything from the way in which the, the, the form of public space produces certain kinds of meaning, uh, but also the way in which it, it houses certain kinds of activity or stops them. So in that regard... Um, I'd rather save the M Pavilion than demolish it, although I, I would point out to Peter in some warning that if you just wait two weeks, someone else will demolish it for you. <clears throat> um, I, I rather like the M Pavilion, and it doesn't greatly bother me that it's connected to a, a particular brand. Um, so, but let's talk... I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the, the, the bigger issues. I'm going to start with a quote from one of my favourite philosophers, Hannah Arendt who's one of the people who has the, the most to say, really, about public space. She said, and she has a very strange definition of power. She says, power corresponds to the human ability not just to act, but to act in concert. Power is never the property of an individual. It belongs to a group, and it remains in existence only so long as the group keeps together. And she said a lot of other things, and she said a lot of things about public space. And she was uh, not, not, I think, nostalgic for the old uh, Greek version of public space, which excluded slaves and women, but certainly pointing out this, in a sense, this birth of democracy and its connection to um, accessible public space. And, of course, the Greek democracy was a place that it was a, a, a privilege, in a sense. You needed the privilege of citizenship and of masculinity, indeed, to... To, to enter it and to become truly public, but it was regarded as an obligation and a place where you, you reveal yourself in this public space and you reveal your views. Um, so th this question of, of the, the, the ongoing role of public space, because some people would argue that it's become much, much less significant then. You know, um, Socrates uh, didn't have an internet or mass media to retreat to. He had public space... He went out there, he engaged in these debates with all of the young people of the day, uh, and eventually uh, he died for that kind of activity, which proved how potent it was in those days. My sense is that, that public space is still extremely potent. There's a, there's a great deal of sensitivity. I'm reminded of this every year when I give a much longer version of this lecture uh, at the university, and I make a point of including... Um, a case study that I did a long time ago on Tiananmen Square. And a very large portion of our student population are Chinese and they've grown up in um, China and they know nothing of this history. It's news to them. There's a quiet little whispers go around the lecture theatre. This, this strange kind of atmosphere descends upon the lecture theatre for a few minutes while they absorb what it is that they're being told. Uh, which is simply what happened in 1989. And that, that's a pretty interesting lesson. I, won't, I can't really tell it here, but um, I'm going to jump to the conclusion. The conclusion is that almost nobody, almost none of the students were killed in Tiananmen Square. The, there were around 1,300 people killed on the outskirts of the square and throughout the different, other parts of Beijing that night but the Chinese authorities went to great lengths to negotiate, with, negotiate a safe passage out of the square for the students. And it had a lot to do with symbolism. 
that the square was where the, the myth of the Chinese state was embodied. And they did not want blood staining that story. So in a strange kind of way, the, the, the behaviour in public space is fundamentally geared to the meanings of public space. And that, that's probably one of the lessons, is if you understand the way in which uh, those meanings are embodied in public space, then you'll understand something of its role in relation to resistance. Because public space nearly always represents the state. And the state, of course, the nation-state, is this institution that was invented um, several hundred years ago, took hold, and now looks kind of natural. We're born in it, we grow up in it. We think Australia has always existed, the state, the institution, but it hasn't, and it will die, you know. I mean, we may not live to see the end of Australia, but it will come to an end because it wasn't always here. The land was always here, but the institution and the boundaries and the borders, and you see through the refugee flows just um, how permeable those national borders are and we have a global economy we have a global ecology and the nation state and the, in many ways cities are the productive engines and in many ways the nation state uh, is, is, is held together it's not about to collapse or fall I'm not suggesting that, I'm simply saying that in many ways it is legitimated through the design of public space and that was certainly the case in Tiananmen in, the, in those rather tragic events in 1989 if we were to move on just a little bit to um, Bangkok, which I'd also studied, and in Bangkok, this history goes back further to the so-called democracy movement, and it continues today. Um, well, it continues in China as well, but in a much more muted form. But in Bangkok, the, uh, those struggles taking place in public space went on from the 1960s. Um, and uh, they came in rounds where there would be demonstrations. The demonstrations would build up, and very often the demonstrations would begin with a protest against bus fares. The bus fares had gone up. Everyone expressed the great outrage. How could they raise the bus fares? We must have a demonstration. They get the people out on the street, and within a day or so, the bus fares have been forgotten. What they want is a new constitution, actually. So it's a... This strange role and the way in which action in public space uh, moves from one thing to become another and this claiming of different kinds of spaces. And I, I really don't have time to tell any of those stories here, but it's a, trying to understand, if you like, the potency of public space and why it is that the nation-state is so deeply invested in the image of law and order tells us something about the ongoing relevance of public space. And a lot of people say, oh, well, these days, of course, it's all about Twitter and it's about the internet and it's about the mass media and so on. But what I think we actually see is that as technologies change, the, the, the mode of the tactics in particular and the strategies of, this, um, of resistance in public space also changes. In Tiananmen Square, of course, the, the Chinese authorities simply closed down uh, all uh, access... Uh, in and out of the country to try and stop the global media from learning about what was going on in Tiananmen. And then the journalists were feeding stories out through telephone lines and all kinds of things. And in the end, of course, uh, the, those electronic communications, information wants to be free, in a sense. It's very, very hard to close that down. But over time, things change. What you see, I think, is a new kind of relationship between power in public space and the particularly communication technologies. When you get to the Bangkok movements in the early 90s and then particularly in 2010, you see it change again with the widespread usage of mobile phones and indeed, the, in, in the case of Bangkok, the ownership of motorcycles. So the, the, many of the demonstrations became mobile. Thousands of people dressed in red on motorcycles cruising around different parts of the city. But then you see another major shift too, which I would link to the rise of the neoliberal state. So I'd simply define the neoliberal state as the state that has moved into a kind of partnership with um, uh, private enterprise and private markets, which is, what I, which is one way of interpreting what's happening with Apple and the Federation Square. Um, <clears throat> Peter calls it a clash of icons. I'd call it a coalition of icons. 
and he just made that phrase up. It probably doesn't stand up, but we'll try it out. Um, <coughs> but you, so you get this kind of, if you like, a partnership between um, the state and the market, and that starts to explain other things. So some of the demonstrations, the, certainly the, the more recent Bangkok ones, but what was happening in Bahrain and in Cairo um, during the so-called, uh, in the, uh, the, sort of the Middle East, what were they, they had a phrase for them, I've lost it briefly. That's right, yeah. And, um, and you see this again too, also in Bangkok. A shift towards, no, away from symbols and onto nodes, looking for where the major flows of the city are. So in Cairo and in Bahrain and in Bangkok, they, they closed down the major flows of traffic and tried to capture, indeed did capture, key node points in the city, particularly where they were surrounded by um, international hotels and uh, high-rise buildings to ensure that the global media can see what's going on. So in the middle of Bangkok, you get this big banner across the street saying, um, welcome to Bangkok, we just want democracy. And it's written in English, and we're the audience. It's not written in Thai, it's not for the, the working-class Thai people who are the demonstrators. They can't read or write English. It's being done. So this is a, it's a, it's a very different kind of a tactic, and it is very much about global media. It is about new telecommunications technology, but it is also fundamentally about public space and about understanding that relationship between urban space uh, and power in a different kind of relationship. This will change again as, we, as time goes on, as more and more of these struggles occur. There will be more and more tactics to exploit the, um, if you like, the weaknesses of the um, public space that has been designed by the market. There will be more and more strategies by the state to close that down or to minimise multimedia access to it. It's just, in a sense, it's like watch this space. This will go on changing uh, and evolving. Um, I'm going I'm to leave that there. I think I've run out of useful things to say. And we can, Thank you, we can pick up some of those points in the uh, discussion. Yeah. Oh, very good. Thank you very much. Thanks, Solomon. We'd now like to open it up to questions. If anyone has a question for either all of our speakers or a particular speaker, just raise your hand and Bart will come over with the microphone. Thank you. This is a question for everyone on the panel as well as everyone here. Um, I'm curious, as Federation currently stands, do you think it is actually a democratic public space? Thank you. Good question. I'll let you... Um Think you have to share with you. It's Federation Square, you mean? Is it a democratic public space? Um, I think it is in some ways. I mean, democracy is not a not a binary. It, it is in some ways, and in other ways, it's not. It's uh, there is genuine public access to Federation Square, but then the state with Federation Square, and this is a piece of the problem. The state has set up a quasi-state agency, which then controls it, and then they they tell them that it has to make a profit. So we learn in the newspaper the other day that Federation Square makes a loss, you know. N nobody talks about the pavement in front of my house making a loss. You know, it, it, it does. Let me tell you, it costs public money and I get to use it for nothing. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a scandal, you know. Um, but Federation Square makes a loss so that the, the, the quasi-state agency set up to run Federation Square are told you have to make a profit and that is what has produced the deal uh, with Apple. They're trying to make a profit. The state is saying, well, well done, well done, you know, and they're doing that in secret. And that's the real problem with the Apple Store in my view. It's, um, I mean, there's, there's, let me just say a couple of things about the op Apple Store. The Apple Store um, is on the riverside of Fed Square. I mean... Many years ago, uh, Ian Woodcock, who's here tonight, and, and I wrote uh, this piece on Federation Square where we argued that some of the key problems with Feder one of the key problems with Federation Square was it wasn't well integrated with the river. One of the arguments is that this will better integrate it. We argued at the time that it needed a commercial mix, it needed commercial activity there in order to keep people in the square sort of night and day. I don't really object to the, the, um, the commercial activity, uh, what I object to is, well, two things. One is this, this 
uh, in a sense, selling the brand to Apple. And then the other one is uh, this, the secrecy of the planning process. This, this is neoliberal planning at its worst. The state goes into a partnership with the, um, private um, operators and does deals behind closed doors and releases them the week before Christmas. This is such an old-fashioned and, and negative and anti-democratic way to operate that I'm ashamed of Daniel Andrews for letting this happen because I think there's some good things he's done. This is one of the worst. Thank you, Kim. I would like to add that I'm not surprised about Apple in Federation Square or demolishing one of those buildings. I'm not even against, and you will kill me for that, <laughs> because I never consider um, Federation Square, first, it's not a square. Secondly, I never consider it public, because it's not public. It was never public. It always had a, a committee of management. I see it more like an event space, uh, like with obviously with some sort of uh, facade as if it was a square. But a square, I'm going to go to the technicalities here. A square is a very special space. A square is not a park. And sometimes I say to people here, I said, well, Melbourne doesn't have a square. Oh, but we have parks. But you know the difference between the two? Pay a place for congregating, a pay, a, a, the other is the place for, in a way, escaping uh, different things. The square has this multi-layer kind of activities that doesn't ha happen in, in Federation Square. I can say it coming from um, or studying and living now in a place where even the most tiny, tiny town, as some of you have seen, wouldn't exist without the square. Before the town is formed, there is this space that is the citizen space that was invented for different reasons, market or military or whatever, the church or the temple or whatever it is, things that are meaningful for something else that is not commercial, is there, the school, the hospital, the clinic, you name it. The person who sells the ice creams or something else, and then the activities that happen spontaneously. And I can tell you that that happens in other places. And how can I put that place that I know is a square and is a public square together with Federation Square? It's attractive. It's a place to be in some occasions. But, um, yeah, to put Apple is coherent. There is a coherence in that. And um, I'm against, perhaps, the creation of those spaces in the first place the concept, and perhaps a little bit sad that we don't have a citizen space as a square as such, with the proportions that the square has to have, the tensions, the democratic aspect in the sense of accessibility, and not talking democracy in the sense of being able to put a banner or, or being able to, to put a graffiti, but the use, the day-to-day, -day, the place you go because you go past even the normal place, a heart, then I'm not surprised. I just wanted to say that. And public space come in different ways. I, was, I forgot to say before that one of the things that the, the public space, in a way, is not an issue in Chile as such, although we have now the e-race, the car race, energy race, okay? Then that makes it okay to go and put this race in the middle of the city in a place that is of heritage value without asking anyone. Then there is an issue about public space there, for sure. On the other hand, the city is so alive and everyone has rights. And perhaps, and this is to do with the history of the place 30 years after a dictatorship, People don't dare to say to someone, oh, excuse me, you cannot do that. Basically, everything, everyone can do anything, which is good and bad. Makes it very exciting, but sometimes really annoying too. Well, the metro, I was going to say, the underground in Chile, this is not mine. I heard a politician saying that it's the most democratic 
public space because it connects the whole city. It connects the poor areas, the poorer areas with the richer areas, and all it does it with the same quality. It's an underground that runs every 90 seconds average. You don't run to get the train because you know the metro is going to be there when you get there to the, the landing. And it has wonderful public spaces. It has uh, exhibition areas. It has areas allocated for, for performances. Then if you are a musician, you know that you have the right, right to be there and to play your music. Then it's another form of democratization and public space too. I just, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Another question? Yeah, thank you to the, to the speakers. Uh, my name is Darren Sharp. I'm from Shareable. Just um, commenting on uh, the whole Apple Store issue. If we think back to Melbourne's founding and the Hoddle Square, it's, it's my, the Hoddle Grid, I should say, it's my understanding that Melbourne was designed not to have any big public squares to, to sort of put a curb on that potential for, you know, pooling of mass demonstrations and crowds of people, which is in some, in, in many cases, an anti-democratic move going back to the founding of the city and thinking back, City Square, which is now a, you know, uh, a building site for the Metro Tunnel near the Western, that was a quasi kind of public gathering space. Fed Square took over that function in the last 15 years or so. You talked about um, this clash of icons and then you picked up on the coalition of icons. If we think about a coalition of resistance, what does that actually look like to um, stop the Apple Store? What would it actually take to, to stop the Apple Store in this post-Occupy age, in this age of, you know, this Trumpian kind of news cycles where everything is, every hour there's another news cycle? Uh, eight change.org petitions isn't going to cut it. So I just want to hear from from you, what would it actually take in 2018 to build a, a movement, whatever the hell that looks like, uh, to stop this thing? Good question. <laughs> Excellent question. Um, I think a couple of things I would wanted to say um, very quickly is I think my concern is that in Melbourne, maybe... Um, Federation Square as a democratic public space or some kind of public space, it's, been, it's already been lost. It's gone. And I think what I would wonder is, I mean, one of the great things about Federation Square was there was a lot of controversy about it being built, that it wouldn't work, that sort of thing. And I think, from my memory, the thing that really tipped it over was the, um, the anti-war marches during the Iraq War. And we got so many people into Federation Square. Beatrice will probably remember. And it seemed to really function really well. Now, what I wonder now is if we were faced with a similar situation, whether or not you would still be able to do that with Federation Square without coming across some kind of surveillance. Um, I think in the course... Um, I think Federation Square versus Apple or Ap the people versus Apple and Federation Square will be our next um, case study. So I, I think there's probably a lot of things that you might be able to do. I think, as you say, the fragmentation of um, efforts by different, um, uh, different things at change.org, I think people basically need to be... Um, organised and have some kind of reasonable and well-organised and, in fact, um, democratic and consensual group and to work as a whole if you really want to stop that from happening. Now, the particular mechanisms and tactics that you might use might differ, but unless you have a holistic group and, and, a, and a group that is not ruled by tyrants or zealots but an actual group working together, then I don't think much is going to change. Now, I think tactics, I'd, I'd be going for the brand. I'd be going for the brands because the thing that really hurts, um, I think, large brands is any sense that their brand is being um, trashed or seen to be... Um, 
made less sacred or, or, or less worthy than what it is. And I, I think that's, that's what I'd be thinking about. But you can't, you know, have these kinds of things without um, proper, you know, org organisation and leadership. It, I agree with that. I, th I think that one of the things that's really interesting in some of these stories is, is what... I know it's jargon. The semantic inversion is when you take an existing meaning that means one thing or is, uh, is utilised in one particular practice of power and you invert it and turn it into meaning it's, it's kind of its opposite. You see this really uh, you know, quite a lot. And if, if, the, if that brand could be taken, I agree with Peter, that if you can, if you can change the meaning, uh, it'll make a big difference. If, did you see just how quickly some of these uh, sort of um, men who were charged with um, harassing women, how quickly they were abandoned uh, because they were a brand. Um, who was it? Kevin Spacey. Uh, he, he, he's locked out. Oh, they just cancelled the next series, didn't they? I mean, within a day. And, and it's all to do with the fact that he, he is no longer... Uh, he can no longer be associated with the brand. And, and something similar was happening with... Was it Craig McLaughlin? And they took him off that night, off... Um, yeah, so it's a... Uh, that's an interesting one because it, I don't think it'll come through, you know, the, the smashing of windows or anything like that, and it won't come through... Through, through violence, more likely to come through that transformation of meaning. And sometimes it's human creativity that can do that the most, is people, in a sense, spreading images that, that, that can do that. I don't, I don't have a, a formula, I'm going to say. Just one thing. Um, as I said, I'm not too fond of, um, of Federation Square because of East Public or East Square. But going back to the Iraq war, um, I wrote from observation because, as um, Kim, oh, sorry, Peter said before, I was very involved in protesting against a war. And um, most of the, the demonstrations happened outside the library, the National Library not in Federation Square. And when it happened in Federation Square, they quickly dissolved. People went to the river, no one saw them, it didn't stop anyone or anything. Where in front of the public library, sometimes it stopped the traffic, which is a real good, if, if we are going to talk about how to stop things, well, that stopped things. And I, going back to public space, I think there is a natural sense, a natural public space somehow that the city is telling us where it is and it's not Federation Square for technicalities, technical. And there are technical aspects about how to design a square that really gathers people and invites people to that space. Thank you. Thank you. I think we need to wrap up... Could we take questions? We're ideally taking questions for panelists. Um, how, I just need... Yeah, one more question. Thanks. With all the anti-Trump and Brexit um, critique here in most liberal establishment circles, I was interested in knowing, and as a, you know, inner city progressive myself, I was knowing when did architecture lose the 56 million Trump voters, you could say, and what's architecture or the built environment doing to connect with people which feel so disillusioned with our public space or the economy that they vote for Brexit or they vote for Trump? And as I remind everyone in the audience, more people in the last election voted for One Nation than the Greens. And, and I was just wondering if you guys had any answers to improve that relationship within open space. Great question. <laughs> I think there are probably lots of people who want to try and figure out the answer to that one. Um, I, I think architects, um, speaking sort of from an architectural perspective, I think architects um, need to be less naive in some ways and they need to be more realist, as I tried to argue, about some of these things. And I don't know if it's necessarily about directly speaking to those particular demographic groups, but it may be about um, broadening the range of what architects do 
and broadening the way, range of the way that they um, act and, and trying to broaden their agency so that it might have something to do. Architects might be more involved in policy making. Um, certainly, I think from my perspective, I think architects are still very much city-focused. I think the whole... I'll be interested to hear what Kim says about this. I think the whole debate around the densification of cities is kind of crazy. I think architects should be more concerned um, with the regions and the regional cities, um, particularly around places or areas like the Murray-Darling Basin. I think that's one area. And um, I think by broadening their range in that way, I think you can then begin to connect or begin to understand um, those other voices. So I think one of the problems is that in... Thoughts are about de- direct democracy, you know, like whether or not is it possible to you know, accommodate, or is, is like if I jump up here and go, well, you know, like and, and then interjecting, like you can, you know, I'm all, already marginalized myself, I can't actually be validated by this gathering, so I've already kind of caused that break. And like, this, so is I don't know, maybe I was just performing like exactly what, uh, you know, anyway. Okay. I wanna, I'd really like to validate that. Um, <laughs> Great, thank you. So, I, I mean, one of the things that concerns me is that at architecture school where you see architects being made, they are obsessed with technology. They're obsessed with parametrics, they're obsessed with BIM modelling and I think we, you know, that's another thing that we nearly, really need to broaden our range out of. I would like to add something really small. Again, in architecture, from my experience now in these five years in Universidad de Chile, this is an university that is 170 years old and is the, I'm going to tell you a little bit, is the most important university in the nation and it was formed to create nation. Then it has a kind of legacy but also a strong sense of responsibility towards the country and towards improving science, whatever. In fact, if you teach there, you have to deal with prior... Let me see, because I always forget this in English. National priorities. Then your subjects somehow have to connect to national priorities. I'm saying this because it's a very different way to teach and to think about this. Uh, Although there is an obsession, too, with technology, it's not... In, I would say, of course, there are cases and cases, but it's not at the expense, generally, of the national priorities, which is really what keeps me going and happy about being there. But I, I went last year, I can't talk about uh, what happened in the US because, you know, it's a different reality again. Nevertheless, I was last, uh, this last year now in APRO, Association of Pacific Rim Universities in in United States. And one of the academics, um, researchers from Texas, said something that, please, you can find by yourself if it's true or not, because I still cannot believe it. He's teaching planning, but planning is forbidden in that state. You cannot plan. I mean, it's something that it was out of this world. Now, if you have uh, students or professionals being talked that way, well, I think somehow it has to reflect that in politics and the importance of the city and the public space and so on, it will be reflected or not reflected in politics. Then um, I was quite um, shocked by that. about power, about who owns the technology. So he refused to. Uh, but my 
comment really is just about the idea that this is revolution in thinking about what power is that's really mostly attributed to Michel Foucault. That power is not this, uh, not only this top-down power over people. It is a set of micro practices that migrate horizontally and catch on, almost like a virus. And that if enough people, as the, the, maybe the Federation Square answer comes from here, if there's enough people who want something to happen and they get together in public space, then that's where power is created. Power is not. Um, a zero-sum game. It's not that there's a certain amount of power that is distributed equally and that if you take it from one person, someone else gets it. Power is produced, it is constructed, and it's largely constructed in public space. Thank you. Guys, we, we do need to end on that note. I'm, 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 okay, I just want to make sure empathizing people. Go, go ahead. Um, like to lament the loss of Federation Square um, or to lament the loss of um, Aboriginal land or Indigenous connection to country. Like, um, I'd like the panel and everyone here to kind of consider what's more important and that we haven't actually spoken about the loss of um, connection to country for the Indigenous people of Nam. Um, of the Kulin Nation and we keep talking about losing Federation Square and getting an Apple store and I just, I wonder what people think about that the panel particularly Thank you Anyone care to comment? Well I, I mean I, I mean I would agree with that mm. and I mean that's the thing that I don't quite understand about the so-called, um, I'll move the uh, microphone away. <laughs> um, that's what I don't understand about the Federation Square controversy because I think there are actually other things that are really more important. And I think the thing that interests me about Federation Square and its design, and its original design, is that its um, theoretical apparatus has um, come out of a milieu um, that actually allows for um, capital to rush in and use it flexibly. It, it, it was always, as some of the people okay. have been okay. saying, Thank you. Um, Thank you. it was always meant to be a kind of commercial space. Its theoretical basis as an architectural work and an urban work okay. is um, it, it allows for neoliberalisation. Okay. But it's not something that contends with it. Thank you. Thank you all for coming here tonight. Thank you to our speakers, to Peter, Kim, and Beatrice. Thank you for your question.